Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is Michael Goldberg, co-founder, managing director, and portfolio manager at Collins Street Value Fund, which is ranked number one in its category by Morningstar over three and five years. After growing up in an entrepreneurial household, Michael studied overseas for several years, where he started a contract cleaning business in order to make ends meet. After returning to Australia in 2007, he started working as a portfolio manager for a well-respected private wealth manager, just as Lehman Brothers was collapsing. In 2015, he and his business partner, Vasilios, launched Collins Street Value Fund, which has gone on to become one of Melbourne Funds Management's best-kept secrets. In this episode, we discuss some of the super investors that he's learned from and his favourite quotes by them, why he likes founder-led companies and one that ticks his boxes, and we take a deep dive into one of the hottest investments in markets right now, uranium. He explains the dynamics of the industry and why they've already sold the majority of their holdings. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you. Patrick, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I feel like this has been a long time coming. I've really wanted to uh, to get you on for a while, so I'm glad that we've finally managed to find a, a time to to sit down and have a bit of a chat about everything that you're doing there at Collins Street Value Fund. Mate, I'm excited to have the chat and fingers crossed I don't let you down then. <laughs> I'm sure you won't. I wanted to actually start a little bit of a different place to what I often do with these interviews and talk a little bit about I guess value and and the underperformance that value as a as a style and as a factor has experienced over the last five to ten years. You know, a lot of there's a lot of really great value managers out there, often with very long successful track records, um, and a lot of them have been struggling a lot in recent years. You know, particularly the last five years towards the end of the of the bull market pre COVID. There was some pretty significant underperformance going on. On the other hand, you guys are clearly, as the name says, uh, value managers, <laughs> and you've been amongst the best performers in the market pretty consistently over the last few years. Why do you think your approach has worked in what has generally been a pretty difficult market for value managers? Yeah, look, I, I think the starting point has to be um, recognizing that the underperformance that you're talking about, I think, is relative underperformance against a market, which certainly in the last five years plus has seen a lot of the energy, a lot of the excitement um, being placed in 
you know, exciting new technology companies or, you know, sort of spec businesses, the sorts of things that value investors wouldn't tend to invest in. So, you know, while they've certainly underperformed the market as a whole, I'm not sure that so strong a case can be made that they've underperformed their own internal goals, you know, generating reasonable returns relative to the risk that they're taking on board. And so, you know, I hear the premise and I, I think it's it's a reasonable question to ask, but I think the starting point needs to be, you know, what are these value investors pitting themselves against? Because I know certainly for us, we're not fussed by what the market does. You know, the market will do whatever the market will do. The market will be, you know, expensive. The market will be cheap. You know, Mr. Market can be, um, can be manic. It can be depressive. And it's our job just to take advantage of whatever situation, you know, provides itself to us. Um, but again, we're not concerned with what market does. We're concerned with what our individual businesses do. And I think probably the same can be said for, for most value investors out there. I would say, though, that perhaps the, the thing that we have in our favor that's a little bit different to a lot of our other funds out there, whether it's value funds or growth funds or whatever, whatever the case may be, is that we've been granted a, a mandate by our investors that really allows us to focus on and just invest in our favorite and, and, and highest, most promising ideas. So, you know, for a lot of funds out there, they'll call themselves a concentrated portfolio and they'll have 50, 60, 70 stocks. And relative to the to the ETFs, that's concentrated. But when we talk about concentration, we're talking about a dozen companies. And if you're focusing on just your favorite 8, 10, 12, 14 companies, all of a sudden you find that you've got a tremendous amount of time that would normally be distracted with keeping up with the other 70 companies that you can instead spend and focus on those best ideas. And when you're focusing on your best ideas, if you know what you're doing and you, you know, you've got a good process and, and thankfully we've built this process over, you know, over, over the last couple of decades. Um, if the process works then you're likely to end up with, with better outcomes if you're only buying your favorite ideas. Now, I, I think and this one's a little bit more wishy-washy, I'm not, I'm not certain. But I think perhaps one of the other points that's a little bit different for us is that we're not pigeonholed into a certain type of company. We're not fussed about the market cap of the company so long as there's enough liquidity for us to get in and out. We're not fussed with the, uh, with the sector that any particular company might be in. And certainly in, in our early days, if someone came to us with an idea that was in biotech or, or or in a commodity company we would have said to them look we're value investors everybody knows that value investors don't invest in biotech or commodity stocks i think over the journey um we, we've evolved enough to recognize that you can find value in every sector of the market biotech included commodities included and so we've sort of opened up our eyes we've broadened our horizons and our networks and our, our area of expertise to be able to include you know, sectors and, and, and areas within the market that traditionally a, a value investor at, at first glance would have avoided. Um, so, yeah, again, I think the two things. Number one, the opportunity to, to, to have that mandate that allows us to be concentrated and focus on, on, on only our best ideas and the ability to find those ideas wherever they may lie. A lot of managers talk about, you know, we make hundreds or thousands of company visits per year. Is that something that, you, that you're trying to do or are you trying to go more deep rather than wide in your research? Look, I mean, the starting point, obviously, is to start wide, identify a company, and then go deep. So, you know, we have a watch list. I think at the moment it's got about 450 companies on that watch list. And not all of our ideas come from there. Some of, them, some of our ideas come from way out of left field and happy to talk about some of those uh, stories if you'd like. 
But essentially, you know, we have this watch list of 450 companies where if the price is right, we'd be keen to buy it. And, um, and we've got, uh, you know, we've got, we've got automated flags that if the share price falls below what we think it's worth by a substantial, you know, a substantial margin, um, we'll get a little flag and we'll, we'll start doing our due diligence. Now, I'm not sure there's a tremendous amount of value in visiting thousands of companies in a year. Now, certainly there are people that have done that. Um, you know, <laughs> Peter Lynch is, is famous for having, done, for having done that in the US and, and he's somebody that I, that I really hold of. I think he's, he's amazing and he's, he, his books are fantastic and some of his philosophies are very much embedded into what we do. Um, but, but again, we're looking to just identify those few businesses that we can get really excited about. And once we find that business, then we'll do a real deep dive. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll get on the road, we'll visit operations, we'll talk to customers, we'll talk to management, we'll talk to staff, you know, we'll talk to competitors. Any sort of information advantage that we can, that we can find that we can somehow garner will add fuel um, to our ability to, to create that app performance, which is obviously what we're looking for. You know, fundamentally, we're looking for that information advantage, which obviously leads you to potential outperformance in, 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 a, in a monetary and in a performance sense. Understand before you got into investing you or investment management, I guess I should say, you had some practical experience in the real world. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I understand you started a business. I, I don't actually know anything about it or even what industry it's in. So what was your business and how did it go? Um, look, I, I think it's important to note just before we get into that, um, that Growing up as a kid, my father ran a retail store, uh, well, a chain of retail stores. Actually, before the recession we had to have, I think it got to about 12 retail stores. And so there was always an entrepreneurial spirit within the house. Um, you know, during the heyday of the Chicago Bulls, um, I convinced my father to, to, to buy some T-shirts of, of Michael Jordan from some of his suppliers. I'd, I'd stick it at the bottom of my bag and I'd take it to school and, you know, my mates were all keen to buy it and we had to do it in the back alley where the, where the teachers couldn't see. And, you know, there was always that spirit of, you know, entrepreneurship, of, of, of you know, wheeling and dealing and, and, and you know, finding some sort of niche that, 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 that's available to be filled and, and, and profit. Um, so, look, when I, I think, I think um, the main business I think that, that we'll, we can talk about is one that I launched when I was, when I was overseas and it sort of came about by necessity. I was I was over in the uh, the Middle East studying in a seminary, and um, you know studying full time in seminary isn't exactly you know the the ideal way to to build wealth. And so you know if you want to pay for a holiday, you want to pay for you know a pizza, you've got to find some way to to, to make some money. And so I did all sorts of little things. The main thing that I did was uh, I I set up and launched a uh, a seasonal cleaning company. Um, at the peak, we had about sixty-five staff. We 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 serviced about a thousand families. Um, it, it was it, it was quite quite a journey, quite an experience. Um, many many lessons learned, both in 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 dealing with customers and customers' expectations, dealing with staff, dealing with payroll. Um, a lot of these things might seem very menial and uh, and basic, but but having some experience in the real world dealing with real people. On the call face, dealing with complaints, dealing with customers, dealing with staff, um, translates into a, I think, a, a better understanding of how other businesses are going to run. I, I don't think it's especially, you know, insightful for me to say that. I think, you know, if you've got experience in something, you'll understand it better than somebody who doesn't have experience in it. So, you know, while obviously when we go about finding ideas within the market, we're going to use many of the same matrix 
as, as other investors will, I think both Vast and myself, both with some practical experience um, in business before we launched this fund, um, gives us just a little bit extra insight. And it might only be a tiny amount, but fractions, you know, tiny, tiny little advantages can translate into substantial advantage when it comes to results. So, you know, we've, we've been, we've been, you know, I don't know, it's, you know, we're certainly grateful for the returns we've had. We're certainly happy with the way things are going. And, you know, our, our client base is, is very grateful for it as well, for sure. Um, but again, I'm not sure that we're doing anything cleverer than anybody else. I think it comes back down to being prepared to do a little bit more than the next guy, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, you know, doing things that people say is weird. And then they say, but it's actually also wonderful. Um, and, and those little things can give you tremendous advantage, tremendous advantage. Well, you mentioned Peter Lynch before, and I know that those super investors, you know, your, your, your famous, uh, well-known investors and studying the, the lessons that they've taught is something that you embrace there at Collins Street Value Fund. I always like to, to refer to the, uh, the quote from Sir Isaac Newton, if I've seen further than others, it's only by standing on the, the shoulders of giants, which I think I may have actually gotten a word or two wrong there, but I think it was close enough. Um, I guess I want to know, like, which of the famous super investors, um, you know, the names we all know, which of them has had the biggest impact on your investment philosophy? And are there any kind of favorite quotes that you'd like to share? Look, I think, I think it's clear that the forefathers of fundamental analysis and value investing on one end, you've got Ben Graham, who was, uh, you know, you know, deep, deep value. The value of what he's buying sold as scrap is worth more than what he's prepared to buy. And on the other side, you've got Phil Fisher, who really started the concept or, or really popularized the, con- the, the concept of valuing future cash flows in a way that hadn't really been done beforehand. And then, of course, you've got many, many people in between. I think Peter Lynch, Peter Lynch and his scuttlebutt, um, it, it, you know, his influence is clear in our process and, and, and in our philosophy. Um, certainly, Charlie Munger is a goldmine of simple and quirky quotes and, 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 and logic that's, that's very enjoyable. Um, in, in terms of quotes, I think my favourite quote at the moment, and I'm not, I'm not actually sure what the source is, but we've got it hanging on the wall. It says, um, every past market crash looks like an opportunity, but every future market crash looks like a risk. And I think, I think that, that quote is always pertinent. Um, but I think certainly at the moment, having, you know, just barely recovered from um, from the COVID crash and also looking at a market that, you know, in general across the board is beginning to look expensive, it, it's worth reminding yourself that, you know, markets tend to rise and crash. And if you can keep your finger on the pulse of the companies that you like and the, the companies you want to invest in, there are some tremendous opportunities to be had. Um, it might be scary in the first instance, but the second you can recognize that that's your emotion speaking, not your intellect. Um, there's an advantage to be had. Well, if you can, I, if you can source that quote, I'd be very keen to find out who said it. I'll see what I can do. To our, any of our listeners, if you happen to know the source of the quote, feel free to jump on livewiremarkets.com uh, and get into the comments of this podcast and let us know. Um, I'm sure we'd both be curious, but I'll see if I can track it down uh, before we release this and, 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 and ascribe a, a source to it. Well, if, if not, I'm happy to take credit. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> um, I understand one of your areas of interest is founder-led companies. Um, 
What is it about founder-led companies that kind of uh, caught your attention? Was it, I don't know if it's research you've done yourself or maybe you read somebody else's research. Is there anything um, anything you could share there in terms of what piqued your interest? Look, I, I mean, I think some of it's anecdotal for sure. Um, some of it's intuitive. Certainly, you know, I've, I've always said th- throughout my history as, as, as an advisor and, and now a fund manager, you know, when people come to me and say, you know, who's going to look after my, my money the best? And the answer is always, you're going to look after your money the best. If you've got the time and you've got the, the resources, nobody's going to look after your best interests better than you can. It, it's, it, it just intuitively, that, that, that makes some sense. But, you know, you know, there are some clear and significant and, and obvious advantages to, to, um, to founder-led companies. Obviously, they're, you know, often they'll have significant stakes in the company, which means that their interests are aligned with, uh, with the rest of the investors. Um, they're going to be entrepreneurial, which is obviously, a, a, you know, a net benefit. They're not tainted with bureaucracy. You know, they're not going to set up these massive bureaucracies that, that tend to create lag and, and, and challenges that, that smaller, more nimble businesses don't need to face. And, and they're energe- energetic about driving those businesses. So I haven't specifically seen studies that, that, have, that have done long-term assessments of, of the long-term outcomes for, for founder-led businesses relative to, to, I don't know, bureaucratic businesses. Uh, I don't know what the alternative is really. Um, but my sense is if the person who's running the place is passionate and excited and keen to get the same sorts of outcomes that you are, you're likely not guaranteed, but likely to do better than if you're being looked after by somebody who's there to get a paycheck for being there nine to five. Um, and look, that, that's been our experience. You know, certainly we've made some great money over the past out of bureaucratic companies, big businesses that are run by boards. Um, you know, the advantage of a bureaucracy is, you know, you, you certainly don't get the flair, um, but you don't get the flair to the downside either. Either, So, you know, you might not get the massive upsides, but you're also you know, you, you're not going to find all of a sudden one morning you wake up and your head's been chopped off. So, you know, certainly, certainly anecdotally from our sense of experience, you know, dealing with these sorts of people and, and the sorts of returns that we've experienced through some of these companies has been has been very positive. Um, but again, you know, it, the, the risk with founder-led businesses is that there's a lot of weight on that founder. Um, while he's good, you'll do well. Um, if he goes away, all of a sudden you have to assess the quality of the business going forwards. And look, if he's really good, he'll bring in people um, underneath him and, and make sure that, that everything's good. And certainly if he's got, um, you know, a fair equity stake himself, then he'll make sure he does all the right things to ensure that that's protected as well. Um, but look, again, it's anecdotal. Our experience seems to suggest that if the person who's looking after your money has the same interests as you, you're likely to do better than if the guy has different interests. Do you see any distinction at all between, you know, your founder-led companies, your family-led companies, and just those companies that have a significant amount? You know, they maybe they didn't, maybe the CEO didn't found the company, but he owns 20, 30, 40% or something. Do you see them all as being fairly analogous to each other, or do you treat them or, or view them differently at all? Look, I, I think that's a, a really tough question. Um, I think it's different strokes for different folks. I think every company is unique. And you've got to really assess the quality of the person and his engagement in that business and, and certainly where his interests lie. Um, you know, I've seen companies where management owned 60% and it was to the detriment of, of shareholders because he ran it like a private business. He didn't care what anybody else, what anybody, anybody else had to say. And um, it was disappointing. 
You know, similarly, I've seen, you know, managers or founders with 30% that were super passionate and very energetic to drive this business. So I I think it's not just, you can't paint a brush and say founder-led businesses are the way to go. Um, It's got to be the right founder-led business. Are there any examples from your portfolio that you could share of, you know, founder-led businesses that you think are particularly attractive and interesting at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, so um, look, certainly in the past, um, we had a stock called Paradigm, which is being led by Paul Rennie, the, the you know the person who, who's built that business, and he's he's very passionate, an exceptional human being, and 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 very good at what he does. That that particular company did exceptionally well. It's come back a little bit recently, but you know we we got involved probably three four years ago um, at a market cap of about a hundred million dollars. It's now at four hundred fifty million dollars. So it's you know it's it's on a journey. It's, it's doing quite well. Uh, similarly. I think about three years ago, we bought into a company called Litigation Capital Management, which is run by Patrick Maloney, who's been doing what he's been doing for about 20 years before listing um, essentially three years ago, which is when we got on board. That company since moved to the London Stock Exchange, but that's a business that's that's fantastic. Patrick is just an absolute gun. Um, and most recently, we invested in RPM Automotive, um, also run by the founders, um, it's, it's, it's a smaller business and they've, they've got some, some wonderful plans to, to roll up a very cottage industry. And, um, and again, extremely passionate, very keen on, on doing the right thing for, for all shareholders and very aware of the importance of capital management, which is, I think, unfortunately, one of the roles of, um, of, you know, one, one of the key roles that many directors sort of, you know, overlook in favor of focusing on growth or, revenue or whatever the case may be so yeah i mean th- those are three companies that that we've invested in that i found a run that have that have that, that have done exceptionally well for us and in the case of rpm we expect will do exceptionally for us could you give us a little bit more detail on rpm i'm curious to hear more if you can um I, i'll be honest i don't actually know a lot about the stock i'd be curious just to get a bit of background you know what what is the what's the industry they're in and what's the the attractiveness of them Obviously, beyond just the the, the founder led, which we uh, we've discussed, um, could you give us a bit of a rundown on that company and why why you're interested in it? Yeah, sure can. Look, essentially, what RPM provide is a home service for tires. So, um, so you know, if you if you've got a flat tire, um, you can either have it, um, you know, you can have your car carted over to to the local garage and they'll they'll do it for you over there, or you can call this particular company and they'll come to your house or your business or wherever you may be. And while you're waiting or while you're working or while you're sleeping, even if that's what you choose to do, they'll change your tire for you and they'll send you a bill in the mail. The, the advantage that they have is that they also import their own tires. And so they get the advantage of economies of scale over there. And the current plan, their current strategy is to essentially um, roll up what is a cottage industry, a very cottage industry. And it's not surprising because, you, you, you know, you need people on site. You need people who can physically get down to wherever it is that the customer might be. So they're in the process at the moment of, of buying other businesses that offer a similar service. They're taking advantage of the, um, of the synergies that they can provide, both from a back end and also providing better margins on tyres. Um and there's some significant prospects going forward. I mean, they're, they're, tra- they're trading at reasonable prices right now. But um, if, if you take into account their acquisitions, which they're doing, again, they're doing it at reasonable multiples, but that's a reasonable multiple based on margins at the moment. As soon as they get rolled in, those margins increase substantially. And all of a sudden, these takeovers look exceptionally cheap. So it, it's not a particularly complicated 
model. And it's obviously important that they manage the acquisition process um, because implementing a, a, you know, mergers and acquisitions is is always fraught with danger. Um, But if they do it right, there is some tremendous upside um, for a business like like RPM to to, to essentially create a centralized, um, you know, major player within the industry and roll up what is, again, otherwise a cottage industry. You mentioned Paradigm just before, which is actually one I wanted to discuss with you. I know it's a stock you've written about um, fairly extensively in the past, um, but it's had, uh, as you kind of alluded to, a, cu- a challenging couple of years, at least the stock price has had a challenging uh, year or two uh, since the pandemic, um, which you know, it seems maybe a little bit counterintuitive given the heightened interest that there's been in pharmaceuticals and, and biotech, but you know, each company is its own. Um, uh, before we get into the actual stock and where it's at today, just for those who who aren't familiar with this, could you give us a brief overview of the of the case for Paradigm and what the the product they're trying to develop is? Yeah, sure. Um, what what got our attention for Paradigm was that they weren't developing a new drug per se. What they were doing instead was um, repurposing an existing drug. So if that's your starting point then you've already got a tremendous amount of information on the safety profile of, of that particular drug. And it becomes less a concern of what the side effects might be and more a question of what's the efficacy of, of, the, of, of the, this particular drug for this particular underlying condition. So they're using um, IPPS or, or pentasone polysulfate, which they've branded as xylosol, um, to treat osteoarthritis. Now, they've completed stage one and stage two clinical trials. Um, concurrently, they've actually been treating people through a special access scheme. So if, if people have had osteoarthritis in their knee or in their joints for quite some time and they've tried all sorts of other things and, and nothing has worked, that they can actually access um, Paradigm's drug and, and, and make use of it. And while they were doing the, the clinical trials, they were also tracking and reporting the outcomes from people in the real world. So when we got interested in this a couple of years ago, it was just before the stage two clinical trials were to come out. And we sat there, Vass and I, across the table and we said, look, you know, we've just been introduced to this company um, through, you know, an extended family member who who ended up using it. Um, and it seems the market is unsure or unprepared to, to back this particular drug as working because everyone's waiting for the stage two clinical trials. But at the same time, the same things that they're measuring in the clinical trials are being measured in the real world and we're seeing those results and it's working. So unless everybody from the patients to the to the doctors to, to 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 the company itself are all lying to us it's reasonable to expect that what we're seeing in the real world is likely to be perhaps not perfectly mirrored but certainly close to what we're going to see from the stage two clinical trials and unsurprisingly that's essentially what happened um, we were able to cornerstone a placement um, at about 68 70 cents at the time uh, I think the market cap around about the time was around about a hundred million dollars. And it had a tremendous journey over the next couple of years. I think it must have gotten to close to a billion-dollar market cap. Um, at that point, actually, Vass and I, we had a chat. It was right as um, COVID-19 was, was coming up. And we said, you know what? It's a billion dollars. Yes, the addressable market for this thing is tens of billions globally. But we're still a ways away. We've still got stage three clinical trial. We've still got all the challenges of, of production and distribution and all sort of stuff. And especially with you know, this scary new world that we, that, you know, that, that we see coming down, do we want to be invested in companies without earnings 
at this time. So, you know, we, we held a reasonable position, but what was a significant outsized position due to the exceptional performance of that stock became a, a smaller position. Um, but look, it, it, it's a wonderful business. As I said, the, the addressable market is tens of billions of dollars a year. And if you could close your eyes and we assume that they're going to get through stage three clinical trials, which I have no reason to expect they won't. No doubt they've got to jump through hoops. No doubt COVID-19 has made life difficult. And I'm certain that the reason the share price is where it is, rather than being materially higher, is because markets don't have patience. And when there's no news, there's nothing to get excited about. Look, on top of that, certainly there's been some dilution along the way, but that's expected from this sort of development company, from, from a biopharmaceutical that's in development. But if we could close our eyes and come back in 10 years, I, I think it's reasonable. And again, I'm not offering advice here and many things can go wrong between here and there. So please don't invest on, on the basis of, of what I'm about to say because anything can happen. But I would expect that, that the share price would be multiples of where it currently is, assuming that they, that they are able to achieve what they're, what, what they're aiming to achieve. Um, and, I, you know, what multiple do you put on a $10 billion, uh, you know, potential addressable market? I don't know, but it's much higher than the current market cap of 450 million, that's for sure. So the struggles over the last year or two, has that just simply been a case of the stock price getting a little bit ahead of where the company is? And uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, does the falling stock price that we've seen, does that reflect uh, challenges for the stock itself, i.e. market challenges, or does that reflect company challenges, operational challenges, uh, where there have been you know, problems along the development pathway? Look, Patrick, I think it's probably a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Um, certainly, um, COVID has made things difficult. Um, what was supposed to be a launch of stage three clinical trials almost a year ago, and we still haven't really launched them in the United States. They, they, they have done most of the recruiting, and that's extremely positive, and I expect that they're going to go into the into the trials shortly, and that's very, very positive as well. Um you know, there's no hiding from the fact that, you know, you've got to deal with the FDA, you've got to deal with the regulators, you've got to deal with, with the world that we currently live in. And, and certainly that's pushed back some timelines. Now, is, is, is that a reason to give up on the business? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, and I think part of the pullback in the share price might be part related to what's going on in the world, but also part, you know, the part has to do with, you know, a lot of excitement being built into this stock. Um, and then, an extended period of no news. Had it not been for COVID, you know, the, the, there's, there's every reason to expect that the, the stock could have continued to stay ahead of itself until fundamentals caught up. But a confluence of no news and also the challenges of COVID has meant that we've seen a pullback instead of the continued, you know, strong, strong returns that we expect we will see. Again, if we can step back, close our eyes for a couple of years and let things play out. I got a question later on in the interview that I really feel like you're going to that is going to be just perfect for you. <laughs> it's all about long-term thinking. <laughs> um but before we get to that, I do have I do want to take a bit of a deep dive into a topic that I think we both are somewhat familiar with, which is uranium. Sprott asset management, I don't think you could put it any other way than saying they lit a fire under the the uranium market. They recently uh, took over a, a trust that already existed from, I think it was from Denison Mines, if I recall correctly, and then they changed the nature of that trust. So the trust buys physical uranium. 
And rather than just holding a static amount now, if the if the price of the of the trust trades above the, the the net tangible assets of the trust, then they can issue you new units and use that to buy more physical uranium. And this has, I guess, supercharged a long term investment thesis that already existed for a lot of people. So obviously, I've talked a little bit about about what happened with 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 Sprott. Probably a little bit more detail than <laughs> than I should have. But could you explain what what is or what was the long term case for investing in uranium? Broadly speaking, yeah. Look, are you are you happy for me to rewind the clock a couple of years to when we first invested, or do you want to just please jump do? To yeah, the I think it's important to understand the background and that you know, although the the attention has come recently, I think this is something that's been happening for a longer time. Yeah, 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 true for sure. Look, I, I think when people think of uranium, they think it they think of it as being a marginal proportion of the global electric grid. Um, I think historically, at least, when people have thought about uranium, they've thought of things like um, you know, the Three Mile Island in the United States. They think of Fukushima, and they think of they think of uh, Chernobyl, which are all scary and dangerous, and the sorts of things that people want to steer clear of. But but it's not a bit player. Uranium and, and nuclear energy is not a bit player in the, in, in the global scheme of things. You know, twenty five percent, twenty to twenty five percent of the U.S. grid is fueled by nuclear energy. Seventy percent of France is. Is is, uh, is is driven by nuclear energy, and some eleven percent of the global grid is supported by nuclear energy, and, and it's growing. You know, it's growing in China, it's growing in India, it's growing in Canada, it's growing all over the world at the moment. Um, now, the reasons why that may be is is, poten- is, is potentially a conversation that can can take an hour for you know an hour on its own. Um, but you know, we recognise, or this was brought to our attention two thousand seventeen, and um, you know, we said to ourselves, look, you know. This is really strange. We're, we're, we're looking at a commodity that is in high demand. It represents 11% of the global grid. Yet the current spot price at the time was about $18, $19. And the, uh, and, and the average cost of production across the world is about $40, $45. Not only that, but we had Cameco and the Kazakhstanis both cutting production by 20%. And, and subsequently, they did that again. And I think spot prices went from... 1850 to 1950. Let's call it $20. Let's be generous. And Bass and I sat there, you know, we said to ourselves, what, what is going on here? So, so, there's some sort of disconnect. There's a disconnect between the way people feel about nuclear energy and the truth about its demand and its place in, in the world at the moment. And so we said, you know what? Let's let's get some expertise in nuclear energy. Let's let's build a a a, a micro portfolio of uranium exposed companies and let's get some exposure to what looks to us to be a clear case of demand increasing versus su- supply going down and a mispricing in the market so we we, we created a I, I don't know, an etf we created a, a basket of of uranium companies within our own portfolio and our timing on on the spot price was almost perfect um, almost to the day that we got our position um, the spot price started to climb from 18 to 19 to 20, and it plateaued at about $30 in um, 2020, in, in, in early, mid-2020. Yet the underlying securities that trade in uranium did literally nothing. You know, many of the stocks went down significantly from late 2017 to early to mid-2020. So when COVID came along 
And all of these shares fell along with the rest of the broader market. Vass and I, again, we sat, we sit across from each other at the table there and, you know, we said, this is absurd. You know, nothing has changed. Spot price is improving. These companies are trading at, you know, during the bottom of the crash, half or a quarter of what they were when we first got into it. It's time to average down. And so we average down, we average down heavily. Now, we can never know when the market's going to catch up and recognize the value inherent in a particular position. Um, it turned out that it was almost three and a half years um, on the dot from the time that we first started buying until the time the uranium markets or, or, or the equity markets reacted. And it felt like almost overnight, these companies trebled and quadrupled and in some cases sextuffled. Like the returns in the back half of 2020 were absolutely astounding. You know, look, it wasn't unreasonable. It wasn't unreasonable because, you know, the last time spot prices were at around that $30 mark, those share prices were where they had suddenly gotten to and then they overshot, they overshot a little bit. So, you know, it, it made sense to us that uranium prices, that uranium stocks had to move. Um, we still, we're still seeing in a, in, in a world where I think spot price is $35, $36 per pound. I mean, globe, the, you know, the cost, cost of global production is still $40, $45. Um, from what I can tell from the grapevine, it seems that any contracts being written by the major utilities in the United States are being written at $50 or $60. Um, so there's certainly still some legs to go. Um, now, we actually sold out of the vast, vast majority of our uranium position um, about a month ago, uh, almost immediately after we sold out, uh, a number of those positions pretty much doubled. So, so we're perhaps not the right people to speak to when it comes to timing an exit or timing an entrance. For, for, you know, we waited there sitting on our thumbs for three years. Um, but, you know, we sat there and we said, look, we understand, we understand why uranium is important to, to the world. We understand why prices need to go higher. Um, but, you know, we did some DCFs on things like like uh, like like Paladin. And at the point that we figured it was assuming $70 or $80 per pound uranium prices, I think it's entirely reasonable that it will get there, but we're not there now. And so we had to make the decision how much of our continued holding of these positions is speculation that things will go into a super cycle and how much of it is fundamentally understanding that the market is missing something and we can take advantage. So... We decided to exit so as not to not to speculate. We have a small holding still. Um, well, it's, it's bigger than it was last week um, in Vimy. Uh, it's 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 a, it's our last holdout in the in the uranium space. Um, and I suppose we wish the best of luck to everybody. I mean, I, I think uranium has a you know a key part in in energy going forward. It is the only option for zero carbon emission um, baseload energy. There, there is no other option at the moment. So I think it will pe- play a key part. And, and we've even seen some machinations in the United States, certainly certainly rhetoric, saying that a lot of the sort of utilities that were looking to be closed down are now going to have their, their life extended. We've even seen some refiners in the United States coming back and saying, look, we're, we're going to open up our refinery. And that, that's amazing because, you know, until that happens, essentially, if you want to get uranium refined, you've got to go to the Russian sphere, which includes Russia and the Kazakhstanis. Or if you're lucky, you can line up behind the French in a couple of European facilities. But otherwise, there's no way to get your uranium refined. So, you know, if we're seeing an American utility, a refining utility opening up, it says two things to me. It says, number one, they expect an increase in demand, which is not shocking. It's not shocking. We, we see 
you know, solid demand increasing around the world for, for nuclear energy. And number two, they expect to be able to make a profit. And I think both of those expectations are reasonable. Um, we sold because we weren't comfortable with what we think is a little bit of speculation that's, that's in the share price at the moment. But just because there's some speculation doesn't mean the markets can't catch up. Can't catch up. And, you know, for all we know, Paladin could be at uh, $2 in, in 18 months' time and we'll look even sillier. But, you know, you make your decision with the information you got at hand and then you live with it. You mentioned there, um, Illinois. There were a couple of reactors that have uh, that have recently had their lives extended, actually by quite significantly by twenty years, which um, I think, off the top of my head, is about an extra three million dollar uh, pounds per year of, of uranium that's come out of the market. Um, and I think that's largely been off the, uh, or at least partly, been off this idea of uranium and nuclear increasingly being seen as like a green investment. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly, you know, produces no no carbon emissions in the in the in the the creation of the energy. Um, so, I, I guess what I wanted to ask, I mean, do you think that the this increasing view that green or ESG uh, credentials of of, of nuclear are, are positive? Do you think that's important for the long term case? It's a good question. It's certainly helpful. Is it necessary? I'm not certain that it's necessary. Pa- perhaps to see higher prices than $60, it would be necessary. But certainly to get to, you know, the $50, $60 mark, I don't think it's necessary to have an ESG case. I think there is a strong ESG case um, and it's certainly helpful. Uh, I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense that, you know, if the world really is looking towards a carbon neutral um, future, I'm just not aware of any alternatives you can't keep burning coal. You can't keep burning oil. If you want to have zero carbon, you got you got to find an alternative. And until battery technology catches up, and it's possible that'll happen, but I suspect we're quite a ways away from uh, you know from being in a position where wind or solar or or other sorts of renewables um, can replace what we're currently using for baseload. And uh, by the way, I, I would note on on your comment about Sprott, I think. I think they were the catalyst for something that was going to happen anyway. Um, You know, what I've certainly seen over the last 12 months or so is that even the miners were saying, look, we've got these contracts. We need to fulfill these contracts. It costs us more to dig it out of the ground than it would for us to go into the secondary market and buy it and then pass it on to the, to the, to the, you know, the the, the utility, the, the, the nuclear power station. And so slowly, slowly, we've seen Cameco, you know, in, you know, we saw, so on the Aussie stock market, we saw Peninsula going into markets to buy the stock to fulfill their contracts. And that to me was, you know, the first sign that things are, you know, broken and about to repair. I think given the time it would have fixed itself, um, Given, given that the miners were going in and, 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 you know, take sucking out, sucking out some of the supply. Um, but Sprott dropping, what is it? $300 million onto the spot market already. I think they're raising another billion dollars to do it again. Um, that's just sped up the entire process, which is why I think we've seen some exceptional returns, um, from, from the equities and also from the spot market because the spot market, it, you know, if, if the stock gets gobbled up, all of a sudden you'll see the spot market hugging what the um what the contracting price is and that's that's materially higher even still than where we currently are at you mentioned that you kept vimy resources um, i'm curious uh, why vimy uh, when you when you were selling the others and 
I mean, I kind of wanted to ask you this this question in in the context of you not having exited the <laughs> largely exited your your positions already. But I still want to hear anyway. What does an exit look like for you? What are you looking for when you when you exit these investments? Yeah. So look for for our general position, excluding Vimy. Um, essentially, what we did was we worked out a DCF um, for for Paladin, and we used Paladin as our proxy for the broader markets. And once we thought that prices were you know were, were reflecting. A, a reasonable or even a you know slightly higher than reasonable um, spot price. We said fine, you know we, we've gotten what we wanted. Um, let's move on. So you know I think I think when we first did our our DCF on on Paladin, I think we used about a sixty or sixty five dollar um, price for per, per pound, and we thought it was worth about forty forty two forty five cents. And I said, well, come on, fast. You you, you know you, you never have a cycle where where prices just screeched to a halt right at that point just above the cost of production. Let's let's change it to, you know, 70, $75. And so we agreed, fine, let's do that. And we got to about a 55 cent, uh, cent for Paladin. And that was it. When we got to 55 cents, we said, fine, fair enough. We've gotten what we wanted. Um, from here on in, it's speculation. And I hope it works out well for everybody else because good luck to them. Um, I think it'll be good for the world if, 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 if nuclear energy um, is successful. Um, but for us, you know, we're not interested in speculating. We're interested in investing in companies till they get to the point, till they get to the point that we think they are fully valid and then we'll exit. Vimy's a little bit different. Vimy at the same time that everyone else was doing really, really well, um, had a couple of struggles. Um, they also fell substantially when, um, Mike Young left. And I think the key driver specifically for Vimy is to get the permitting to actually start the mining, um, here in Australia. So they've got their first of three permits. From, from our research, it seems that that was the key one and the other two will follow without too much drama, although never counting chooks before they've hatched. Um, and so we made the decision just to wait until we see that those announcements come to the market, fundamentally impact share prices, and then we'll exit. Now, we can't know if some of the steam will come out between now and then, but fundamentally we'd like to hold on until we see them get those permits. We think there's some upside there. You, you talked about the possibility of prices going up and, and coming back, and I, I wanted to explore that a little bit. I mean, obviously, there's been a massive amount of speculative fervor in the industry very recently. I mean, we're talking literally within the last few weeks, maybe a month. Um, mm-hmm. It's gone, you know, it's gone from being unknown and unloved to being the hot, you know, the hot trade. Uh, as we saw last year, I think, yes, it was last year, I'm losing track of time now. Um, once the Wall Street bets crowd kind of gets involved, they they can get very excited very quickly and then lose interest very quickly as well. I guess so. It's a two part question. One, do you think that's a possibility here that you know the Wall Street bets crowd kind of loses interest before the long term story plays out, um, and and we see prices return to some level of normality? And if that happened, would you be keen to get back involved? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes, it's a possibility. And yes, if prices are attractive, we would be interested in in, in, in coming back on board for sure. Um, I think the difference between supporting nuclear energy and backing AMC or Hertz or some of those other Wall Street bets ideas is that, look, there were some fundamentals and there was some clever um, nuance around the shorting and squeezing out the shorts. But fundamentally, those businesses 
were businesses that were on struggle street and whether they turn around or not is 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 speculation they may they may not um uranium fundamentally has an underlying demand that will see it worth something that'll see it worth something um what that something is we thought it was about 55 cents a paladin the market says michael you're an idiot we're prepared to pay a dollar for it today two weeks after you got out that's fine. I, I can live with that, you know. <laughs> so, so sometimes, sometimes these things, you know, you, you, you see markets move, and you know, we have uh, we have a distrib- you know, a head of di- we have a distribution person in the office here, who uh, you know, he, he's part he's part of the conversation. Everyone, it's a small office. Everyone's part of the conversation. And he came in, I think, three days after we sold. He said, "Oh my gosh, guys, Paladin, it's at like seventy cents." <laughs> and Fast and I both looked at him and said, "We know. We've taken it off our watch list. It's it's." it's it's not my concern. It's not my concern and not my worry. The profits of everybody else. My concern and my worry is buying companies when they're cheap, selling them when the, when when they're appropriately valued, and then moving on to the next idea. Um, focusing and 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 getting caught up on what happened after you get out is nothing but a recipe for disaster. And you know, look again. I wish the Wall Street bet crowd all of the best. I hope they make an absolute packet out of nuclear energy. I hope that nuclear energy, you know, ultimately represents 50% of global, you know, the global electric grid. But from an investment perspective, none of that is my problem. Well, uh, I guess then what is your problem from an investment perspective? (laughs) What I mean by that is, um, you know, as I said just a moment ago, the uranium story is playing out that money is flowing into in the into the industry and whether it goes up you know five percent a thousand percent or if it falls from here you know it, it is it's definitely reached a different stage of the investment cycle so mm. what's what are you looking at now what's what's a, either a, a stock or a thematic that you see you know that really kind of unloved nobody wants to own it we might have to sit in this for a while to see it play out, but you know there, there's there's something good on the line here. Is there anything that you're seeing out there that d- display some of those similar attributes? So, so all you're asking for, Patrick, is the next uranium thematic that can five bag in a couple of years. Is that all you're asking for? <laughs> it doesn't have to be a five bag. I'm interested more in it from a from a soft perspective. You know that that displays nobody can predict what where where prices are going to go. But I, what I'm asking is, do you see attributes you know similarities in other in other areas yes i mean the short answer is yes there's always going to be sectors that are loved and overly loved and there are always going to be sectors that are pariahs and the one sector that we think in general that is considered a pariah is is fossil fuel energy at the moment specifically um oil and gas you know and, and the two companies that that we've been investing in recently um to to, to gain exposure to to that space is is number one beach energy and number two, number two, um, Mermaid Marine. I think it's MRM offshore now. Um, you know, just the environment that we currently live in, directors and banks and financiers get no credit for investing in or, or, or increasing their spend on, on that space. You know, it's very, very difficult, for example, to get any financing now to, to start a new project in the oil space. It's just it's just not possible. Number one, because the banks won't lend you. And number two, because your shareholders will essentially crucify you. So it's really, really interesting. And 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 I'm on board with the concept of demand for, for, for oil specifically, but potentially oil and gas in the future going down. But 
there's a disconnect between what people believe and what's playing out in reality. So I think people believe that as consumers shift to electric vehicles, the demand for, let's go with oil for the moment, is going to drop off a cliff. It's just not true. It's just not true. The use of oil by passenger cars represents about 15% of demand for oil. 15% goes to air travel and 75%, go, sorry, and about 70% goes to um, production and plastics and things like that and, and, and haulage. So, so there's a real interesting disconnect between suppliers bringing down supply in anticipation of falling demand, yet demand seems to be certainly stable and according to a lot of the research that I've done and a lot of the reading that we've done, likely to increase at least out to 2030. So, you know, in an ordinary cycle, you know, in an ordinary commodity cycle, what you get is as prices go up, competition comes in and so prices go back down and then the cycle repeats itself. With the oil space, and I think fossil fuels probably in general, is you can't get financing for new projects. And if the big listed companies are moving away from fossil fuels and into green energy, where is the competition going to come from to bring prices down, which is the normal order of business for a commodity cycle? Now, the answer is, I don't know. You know, it's possible we'll see a super cycle for these, you know, these these green pariahs. It's, it's possible. But even setting that aside, you know, mem, you know MRM it's trading on 30% of its of its net tangible assets. If they sold all of their ships tomorrow, and they could if they wanted to, they're worth more wound up than alive. A classic Ben Graham. Now there's certainly complexities around contracts and and around employment law and all that sort of stuff, but on the face of it, it's trading at 30% of the value of its wind up value. And these ships can be wound up. Yeah. Their average fleet age is something like six years old, which is exceptionally young. So their fleet is attractive. On the beach patrol, on the on the beach energy side, you know, this company, without anticipating any kind of super cycle in oil prices or gas prices, it's trading on like you know, 22, 23, it's trading on like five to six times earnings. Like it's a two billion plus dollar company trading on five to six times earnings. That's exceptionally cheap. And it's even cheaper if you compare it to its peers. You look at Woodside, you look at Earl's Edge, you look at Santos. I mean, it's like one third the price of those companies. But even forget about the relative, just on, a, just on the face of things, you know, unless you think that the entire business and the entire industry is broken, you know, if they last five years, you get your money back, you know, essentially in earnings. So, so there are the, there, there will always be, there will always be these sectors, there will always be these pockets of opportunity where because of, the emotional decision-making of investors at large, there will be opportunities for people who are able to see through that uncomfortable position to make a tremendous amount of money. And we think at the moment oil and potentially oil and gas um, is, is, is a very, very interesting place to look for the next couple of years. Well, that actually brings me to the end of the main part of the interview. I know we've gone a little bit long here. Do you have an extra five or 10 minutes so we can do our favorite questions? I have no doubt that you are an expert editor and get us under the hour, but yes, you've got all the time from me. <laughs> I was more asking about your, your personal uh, uh, diary for the day. <laughs> so, um, actually, I, I, I took out the entire day dedicated to you. We can keep going till about four. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, first of all, could you tell me about a book that's been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? Oh, goodness. All right. Look, you know, probably probably two of the most recent books that, are, that I've read or am reading um, for quite different reasons, actually. One's called The Outsiders. It's, uh, it's basically a book that looks at eight exceptional CEOs of listed companies, predominantly in the United States, and how they produced outsized returns over the long term for their investors. And for, for, for me, it was a seminal moment reading it and, you know, Vass reads it every six months now. I've read it a couple of times. The key point is that, you know, historically, I think for a lot of fundamental investors, for a lot of value investors, you discount the quality of management at your detriment. Um, I think the value, sorry, I think the quality of the people running a business is almost as important as the quality of the business by itself because the difference between a manager who knows how to allocate capital and and a manager who does not know how to allocate capital I mean, the returns, the compound returns over the long term can be just polar, polar. They, they can be miles apart. So, so having read that, you know, we've, you know, a lot of the companies that we deal with, sometimes we talk to them, talk to their board, especially the smaller cap companies, you know, we'll send them the book and say, hey guys, read this, you know, we're not asking you to follow it to the T, but this is just a way that you guys should be thinking. And, uh, you know, we've had some of them call us back and say, hey guys, we're doing this capital return because... It makes sense after you read your book, and we're like, wonderful, you know. This 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 is a great tool. This is this this is the sort of thing that people should be should be focusing on, you know. Again, I think I said it earlier. A lot of managers get so caught up in running the day to day business, they don't realize that a big part of their job is capital management. So that that's one. Um, for us, it uh, it brought to light the importance of good management, not just good compliant management, but really good management. Um, and two, it provided us some side benefits of, uh, of, of some of those companies doing some of those positive things for us. I think the other one that I'm currently reading, and it's not an easy read. So if you're looking to give people an easy read, this is, this is not one that you should focus on. Um, but it's by Daniel, um, Kenman. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, the basic premise is that we essentially can't rely on ourselves to be objective. Um, all the decisions that we make with all of the best efforts and with all the research that we've got at hand, um, is always going to be impact, impacted and framed by, by, by our own subjectivity. Um, and, and I suppose an inherent laziness that everybody has within them to think deeply and to challenge their own status quo. So, you know, for us, for us in the office, certainly, you know, you know, we, we, we've recognized some of these challenges and we've implemented, um, ways to, to avoid them and, and, and to, and to confront them head on. But, you know, one of the things that we've always done is, you know, know, we've got a team. So so it's not just me sitting there trying to work out if an idea is a good idea or not. Vass and I will always challenge, like really challenge each other to the point of frustration. Um, But it means means that if there's a hole to be found, that hole will be found. And, and, And the other aspect is because it's not just me sitting there coming up with the idea myself, I need to understand this idea deeply and well enough to teach it or give it over to somebody else. That means that you know, in the process of, of getting comfortable with it, you know, I'm going to uncover any, any shortcuts or missteps that I've made. So, so again, thinking fast and slow, it's a hard read, but for anyone who's interested in psychology and human psychology in general, um, certainly if you're looking at investing um, 
on your own behalf, I think it's well worth being aware of some of these challenges that that everybody faces in their decision making, um, because recognition is the first step to to overcoming, and it's 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 wonderful yet difficult read. You're not wrong. It is a it is a challenging read. It took me a couple of attempts to get through it, actually, to be honest, which doesn't happen often. It it, it is uh it it's 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 very uh it's not even that it, the way it's written. It's just that the information is very dense and very and difficult yeah. to absorb. It turns on yeah. your system two for for someone who writes about system one and system two thinking. You would think he understands that if we want to read the whole book, he's got to keep our system one engaged and give our system two a break, but. <laughs> It, it seems to me that every time I pick up this book, every page, I'm engaging fully to understand what's going on. So, so but it's, it's a wonderful book. It's worth a read. Definitely. Um, as always, I'll put a link up in the wire to this podcast uh, to mm-hmm. both of those books. Um, I try not to be too choosy. I usually put up a link to both Amazon and Booktopia. So jump on livewiremarkets.com um, and just navigate to the wire for this podcast and you should be able to find a link to those two books in there. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? We're talking dollar numbers or are we talking, um, annualized return? Oh, I'm happy to go with whatever suits you. Um, Let's go with annualized returns because dollar numbers are easily skewed by the by the size of what you're investing. <laughs> right. No question, my best annualized return was in grade six, where I discovered a box of uh, Crick cards at the two dollar shop, and realized that if I took them home, broke them up into sets, and then rode rode my bike down to the local card dealer, that I, I could get nine dollars per set. So that <laughs> for certain, that for certain is my best annualized return we we i was with the maid actually we went riding our bikes to the two dollar shop because two dollar shops were pretty new and i've told this story so i apologize if you've heard it before but um you know we're boys and you know we're into sports and we saw these 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 boxes of cards for two bucks so we thought that that looks pretty cheap so we bought one box because we had two bucks on us um we took it to my mate's house and we we we, we sorted it out into sets and then we rode our bikes down to the um to the local card shop and we sold each set. I think it was for nine bucks or something like that. Like, oh, wow, this is great. So we took our nine bucks per set. I think there were three or four sets and we went back to the $2 shop to buy the rest of the boxes. I did it again. But uh, this time when we came back, uh, he said, hey, guys, what's going on? And so we came clean and I think he gave us six bucks per set. But uh, it was it was a wonderful return for an afternoon in terms of, uh, in, in terms of annualized returns. Um, in terms of... Look, uranium's been exceptional, um, for sure. I, you know, it, it was it, it was it was a five bagger in Peter Lynch um, in Peter Lynch terms. So that was that was wonderful. Um, look, I mean, I think the I think the ideas that have generated us the best returns, both uranium. Um, you know, I actually in, invested in some some over the counter options right before Vass and I launched this business in a company called Chorus. At the time, the the, uh, the government were on their case about the prices they can charge for their for their pits and trenches. So, sorry, so Chorus, Chorus is the New Zealand version of the back end of Telstra. I, I think that pretty much covers it. And um, and the market was punishing it. I think it had fallen from three dollars to a dollar twenty five or something like that. You know, the regulator came out and said you need to charge some amount that is so low, basically that the business was broken. But the market didn't understand that the business had a counter. So there were two ways that the regulator could price access to, to, to their infrastructure. One way was go out and find in the wider world 
other systems that are similar and on that basis select a price and that's what they did because that was the easier way to go about things. Um, but all the countries they found, I think there were two or three, were in Europe and the European infrastructure is different to New Zealand infrastructure. The alternative and the fallback if the company requested it was that the regulator would come in, assess the cost of maintaining at an appropriate margin and on that basis, that would be the price they could charge. So we knew, we knew that despite all the news, despite of all the political hot potato that it had become, because you know everyone likes the idea of cheaper internet, so it became a political hot potato, we knew that ultimately pricing would be reasonable and we could make a tremendous amount of money out of this idea. Um, so we ended up getting some over-the-counter options. I think it was for 12 or 18 months, whatever the case was. We thought, you know, give ourselves plenty of time that this can play out because whenever there's politics involved, it takes longer than expected. We thought it would take six months. It ended up taking the full 18 months um, and we made a tremendous amount of money. But it was just, it, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting experience for us because if the market was prepared to read the available information, if the market was prepared to speak with management, you know, we actually called the Minister of Communication in, in, in New Zealand and had an ongoing correspondence with them. So there were ways to find out that, that this issue would be resolved and it would be resolved profitably for Chorus. But time and time again, it just seems that if something is a little bit more difficult or a little bit different from getting out from behind the computer screen, a lot of people struggle to do it. Um, and so there's advantage. There's tremendous advantage. You know, we'll get out. We'll visit shops. You know, one, one of the one of the one of the companies that recently did especially well for us is National Tire and Wheel. During the COVID crash, um, you know, I was sitting there wondering, should we be averaging down? Should we not be averaging down? And like everybody, I'd like to make the decision in the comfort of my home from behind the from behind the computer screen without doing anything that makes me feel strange or or, or yucky. And it was just it was fortuitous timing. My daughter who was obviously doing homeschool, walked in and said, you know, Dad, I've got a project. I, I, I need to find out about the impact of COVID-19 on, on local businesses. What do you think I should do? I said, you know what, honey, we're going to do your project together. <laughs> so we ended up calling, <laughs> we ended up calling, I think it was, it, it was eight companies, eight, eight tire and wheel companies in the area. I said, honey, you've got to speak to at least two of them and I'll speak to the other ones. And, and let's see how we go. Let's get the feedback on tire and wheel companies in, you know, in, in Victoria and in New South Wales. So we called around and let me just be clear, they were much more forthcoming and willing to speak to my 14-year-old daughter than they were to me. So perhaps, perhaps, so. It's, perhaps it's a lesson learned. Perhaps child labour isn't so bad after all. But, um, <laughs> but, but the feedback we got was phenomenal. You know, the market thought that, you know, tire, you know, tire companies were going to be broken. They thought... 60 to 80% of the business was going to go out the back door and that it was Armageddon. Yet when we spoke to these people, certainly in the inner suburbs, they said, yeah, it was the worst we've ever experienced. And I said, okay, well, how bad? They said, oh, 30% down. I'm like, okay, well, 30% down is bad, but it's not the end of the world. It's not what the market's assuming. And when I called regional places, they actually saw increases in tire sales because of, you know, people, you know, mobility, like, um, like RVs and things like that, driving around, you know, driving around the bush, whatever the case may be. So, my daughter went away and wrote her report and got an A and I went away and significantly averaged down on our position in the portfolio and, and made a good return for our investors. So, you know, <laughs> I forget how we go onto this tangent, but, um, but, but I think, again, there are some phenomenal opportunities to be had um, in many, many areas within the market if investors are prepared to do something a little bit different and a little bit 
uncomfortable because people would much rather be people would much rather be comfortable than successful. And sometimes to achieve that success requires some discomfort. And if you're prepared to take that on board, there there are opportunities everywhere you look. I mean, can I just, can I just add? I I actually had somebody who asked me last week, you know, about investing, and I said, look, I obviously I can't offer any advice, um, you know, but I can point you in in, in the right direction. And, and we've spoken about Peter already, Peter Lynch. I think it's worth adding to to the book list to add Peter Lynch, uh, Peter Lynch's um, one up on Wall Street. Um, you know, I, I think his explanation of scuttlebutt and the advantage of everyday people to absolutely smash the returns that Wall Street people and Collins Street people can achieve is 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 a salient point and it's 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 worth reading. It, it it's worth keeping in mind. I think that um, my guests might think that I'm part of, paying people to say that by now. Um, it's a very popular book. I, I love it. It's absolutely my favorite uh, investing book of all time. And there's another recommendation for our readers, uh, for our listeners, I should say. If you haven't read it already, you need to get on it now. Look, for full disclosure, I might jump to Amazon to get some shares, but um, you know, I'm anticipating <laughs> a, flood of, a, fl- a flood of sales now. <laughs> Um, I do have one more question for you, um, but before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. I'm not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there and puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if the markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? I think I'm torn. I, I'm torn between the three companies, well, three of the companies we've already spoken about. Um, I think litigation capital management is a wonderful business, although I recognise it's listed in the UK, so perhaps it might be a little bit difficult for, for, for our listeners to, to get their hands on. Um, so I'm torn. I'm torn between RPM and, and beach beach energy. I think RPM, if everything goes well and they keep kicking their goals, the returns could be astounding o- over the next five years. But you're telling me we're shutting the market and I can't trade out of it. So if, God forbid, management was struck by lightning, I'd be in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> so I-, I might wimp out. I might wimp out and I'll go for beach energy, which I think is also um, a wonderful business with some fantastic prospects. Um, I suspect that we're going to see continued increasing demand for for oil and gas um, over the next five years, and I think it's just too cheap. You know, it's again, it's 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 a third the you know on a value basis, it's it's a third the price of its competitors. You know, on on a, on a PE basis, it's it's trading at you know five six times. I think it's it's just a solid business that's going to generate really really attractive returns over the next few years. All things going well, it's not advice. can't argue with that well michael thanks so much for taking the time out of your day i know we've gone a bit over time so thank you for for hanging around um it's been great to chat to you i've really enjoyed your insights and um i'm sure at some point in the future we'll get you back on the show again no worries patrick it would be my absolute pleasure thanks for having me well that's the end of the show if you made it this far i hope that means you enjoyed it so please follow us on apple podcasts or spotify Or, if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.